I tell you, uh, Brother Hyun is so encouraged by your love for Christ and just by our family. Just had an opportunity a few weeks ago with the Lees just to go down to their house and spend time in fellowship with them. Uh, it's so encouraging just to hear Hyun's testimony as you heard this morning and just to spend time with his family. Just to see his wife, Nikki, just her heart to serve and just also your children. And so we're so thankful for you and thankful for your humility this morning just to testify of God's grace and to share what the Lord is teaching you and what He's also teaching us uh, through you as well. So I thought it would be fitting, uh, according to the text that we'll be looking at today, just for me to read Psalm 128 to you, brother, and also to the rest of the body here. So if you would, would you please stand with me? Have an open your Bibles to Psalm 128. And I want to exhort and encourage you this morning with this psalm. A song of ascents. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you for the Word of God, which is nourishment to our souls. And we thank you that the Word speaks so clearly to what I would believe is the most intimate and personal, fundamental relationship on the face of the earth, the family. God, I thank you so much for Brother Hyun and his love for you, which you have lit in his heart. I thank you for the way which he has chosen to raise his family, shepherding them through the Word of God. I thank you for the work you're doing in his heart, giving him a heart for the nations, a heart for the world. And I pray you'd continue to cultivate that in his heart. And I pray that you'd continue to wash him with your Word. And I pray that even this morning that you would use this text in his own life, directing him to be a man who fears you and knows the blessings, the foundations, Lord, of joy in the family. And I pray for the rest of the church here this morning and for my own heart that you would stir up our hearts, maybe by way of reminder or maybe by the first time this morning through a psalm such as this. Lord, I ask you for clarity and I ask you to help my words come forth with graciousness and humility as, Lord, I am so desperately in need of this psalm myself. Oh, Lord, we praise You and thank You this morning. We give thanks to You because You are great and You are greatly to be praised. In Your name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, I'll tell you immediately that a text like this is in many ways over my head or maybe over my experience. The kind of experience that I've had in life. I've been married for uh, coming on three years. Lydia, our, our daughter, just turned one. 
this week. And if anyone should come and speak about the family, maybe I should invite my grandparents, my grandpa, up there in Washington. They've been married for, last time I checked, it was 66 years. might be 67 now. And I know that he would have much more wisdom and insight on the family than I would. But by God's grace, I'll just direct us to the Scriptures this morning. Because our God is more infinitely wisdom than any man. And so I speak for myself and for all the leaders at CBC this morning that when I say there is a great burden upon us for the incredible plan for the family, I speak for all of us. And this subject and this topic of the family burdens all of our hearts. Burdens the church leaders. And I think that we're burdened because if you look around and you see the age and you look at the demographics of Cornerstone, we are not what you would call a family church. I don't know what you would call us. You would call us a, a youthful church. But we're not what you call a family church. We're not the second generation that has come from Cornerstone, birthed forth from our fathers and mothers. You look around and you're sitting here this morning, and most of you don't have your parents here with you this morning. Most of you, in many ways, weren't even raised in the church Hyun spoke this morning. His parents were Buddhist. He didn't grow up in the church. And so when I say that we're not a family church, that's what I mean. That you're here, God has maybe saved you from parents who weren't believers, and, and even if you were raised in Christian homes, your parents are other churches. Maybe they're in uh, Korean churches or Chinese churches, and you're here at this English-speaking church. And regardless of whether you know it or not, this has had a tremendous impact on our church. It's had a tremendous impact on the wisdom that we are able to carry on or not carry on because it's not been handed down by our parents and by our forefathers. And besides that, I think there are other cultural things that are going on in the world that likewise have affected Cornerstone in ways that you don't know it. Take, for example, the women's liberation movement. I would imagine that if we went around, most of you in here would say that you are not for women's lib. But what you don't understand is that it has absolutely affected our church culture. Maybe in ways that you don't understand, maybe in ways that you're unaware of, but it has affected this body of Christ. And this body of Christ, though you might be unaware of it, has been affected by the world around us. Maybe materialism. Southern Orange County, we hear over and over, almost every week, that we live in the richest place in the world. And it is impossible to be unaffected by that grasp in this church. And all that comes down to how it affects the family. And the families at Cornerstone Bible Church have been affected by the world. And why that's so important is because the way the family goes is the way the church is going to go. The way the family goes, so goes the church. Because before there was ever a village, before there was ever a town, before there was ever a city, before there were ever nations, there was the family before there were ever best friends, before there were bosom buddies or blood brothers, there was the family. 
Before there was ever even the church of Christ, there was the family. The absolute very first relationship that ever existed in the history of two humans was marriage between a man and his wife. And that first marriage between Adam and Eve, what did it equal? It equaled the first family. And it's in this confines of the family that the Bible describes some of the most incredible joys that can take place between a man and a woman. It's between a husband and his wife that the intense desire for companionship are fulfilled. It's between a husband and his wife that the intense desires of sexual intimacy are fulfilled. For you husbands, the, the means of having a wife is in many ways the means of becoming a man. It's the means of you exercising the leadership of a man. It's the means of you becoming the leader, of providing for your wife. Of being a teacher, of being an instructor. Uh, For you women, becoming a wife is the beginnings and fulfillments of the God-given family desires that you have. To have a husband who will love you and cherish you is a God-given desire. To have a a husband who will provide for you and who will nourish you and who will lead you in the ways of God, who will satisfy your physical needs and your spiritual desires, who will be the, the needed counterpart to provide the children that your heart is made to desire. All those things happen in the confines of marriage, of this God-given institution. But if you look around this morning, you'll see that something drastic has gone wrong. You'll see that something has insipidly invaded the church. And if perhaps you would think deep this morning, you would see even it has invaded your own family. Maybe you grew up in a family where you didn't see your own father cherish and passionately love your mother. Maybe you didn't grow up in a house where you saw your dad desperately clinging to the cross and desperately preaching the gospel to you and urging you into the ways of salvation. And the lack of seeing that and the lack of growing up in a family in a household like that has impacted our church this morning. And so that's why we come to this psalm this morning. This psalm tells us what it means to be a blessed family. This psalm tells us the foundations of family joy. And that's really what I've entitled this psalm this morning, this this sermon. The foundation of family joy. And we're going to see what it means to have a biblical family. And we're going to see that the fruits of a godly family start right here in this text. And I hope this morning that you might see the incredible joys that a biblical, godly family will provide. We're going to study four promises to the God-fearing family this morning. But I want to warn you up front that this psalm is directed to men. This psalm is directed to you, men who are the heads of household or who are aspiring to be the head of a household someday or who will most likely be. And so I want to tell you with humility that in some ways this text is hard-hitting. And I prayed much And I've sought the Lord much and I pray that He would give me the grace to speak the truth to you this morning. 
And so let me show you what I mean. Let's look at the promise number one. Promise number one. Your fear of God brings personal joy. Your fear of God brings personal joy. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Before there was ever a nation, before there was ever a city, before there was ever a village, before there was ever a town, before there was ever even a family, there was a man and there was God. The very first relationship outside of the Trinity that ever existed in the history of creation was between man and God. And the psalmist says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And at first glance, you might think that, that everyone would refer to men and women and children. But as we dive into the text further, which we'll do in a bit, but you'll look in verse 2 and it says, When you shall eat, when you shall eat... And in Hebrew, those three words are one verb in the Hebrew. And from that one verb, we know that this is speaking directly about the man, to the head of the household. And so when the psalmist says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, he is talking to men. He's speaking to you. And he says, how blessed, how happy, how joyful, how glad is the man who fears the Lord. And we might... Step back for a minute and say, how does happiness and joy correlate with fear? Because we wouldn't normally put joy or blessedness with fear. But the Bible states over and over that the fear of God is blessing. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Job 28.28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 112, verse 1, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. But what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Let me direct you to these texts one more time and, and look closely. Listen to this. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, fear of God means heeding the instructions of God. Notice Job 28, 28 again. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. To depart from evil means you're obeying God. Psalm 112, 1. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. How do you fear the Lord? Who greatly delights in His commandments. In other words, you fear God by loving and obeying His commands because you obey what you fear. You see that? You obey what you fear. You ever had a little kid, some little kid, some maybe a smart out little kid, just boss you around and tell you what to do? And what did you do? You just looked at him and you just kind of chuckled. You said, what are you talking about? 
This little kid demanding you, looking up to you and telling you what to do. And you look at that and you just laugh. Because you don't obey little kids. Because you're an authority. And little kids do not instill fear in parents. Little kids do not instill fear in adults. If your kids demand you to submit to them, you know what happens? You know what comes after that? A big old spanking. When your kids try to tell you what to do, man, they know what's coming after that. Because your kids don't tell you what to do. You tell your children what to do. And the Bible tells us that we are not the ones telling God what to do, but God is the one telling us what to do. Because He is an authority. Because He is God. And verse 1 makes it clear that fearing God means obedience. Because the psalmist writes, How blessed is everyone who fears Yahweh, who walks in His ways. Who walks in His ways. The word way has numerous means of translation. Road, path, manner, route. And the verb tense of the word walk describes this perpetual walking, this habitual, this characteristic of a man who is abiding and walking in the ways of the Lord. This is a man who is in the constant habit of fearing God and and obeying His ways. And And the Scripture says that when you do this, it creates a path. It creates a way. And maybe if you've been in the forest before, and you've, if you've been in the thickets, you're walking through, and there's places that are they're thick and they're overgrown. And what you're doing is you're looking for a path. And what a path is, it's a place where people have trotted and, and gone over and over and over. It's that place in the grass where people have walked and ran and hiked over so many times that it's worn out into a path. And that's what the Scripture speaks of. It's this man who's habitually walking with God, and he's trampling down, and he's making this path. And I've illustrated this before. When I was in junior college in Oregon, there was this path of, there was this stretch of freeway that was about two, three miles long. And it had been driven so much, and the elements had affected it so much that there was just these, these ruts, these divots in the road. And what you could literally do is, you could get your car in these ruts, and you could take your hands off the wheel, keep your foot on the gas, and you would just drive in these ruts for two miles straight. And these ruts would just steer you in your path, just leading you on the freeway. And that's what the Word of God is. It, It leads you down this path. It leads you towards the Lord. And it leads you in a walk, in a manner worthy of the calling of God. And the psalmist says, How blessed is the man who's released and relinquished the steering wheel to God who is no longer at the helm, who is no longer at the wheel, but God is the author, God is in control, God is the captain of his life. How blessed is the family whose father, whose husband, has relinquished his grip on life and submitted his life to the authority of God, to the authority of the Scriptures, to the subjection of this divine authority, of these holy mandates. How blessed is the man And I want to emphasize again that true happiness and blessedness starts with you husbands here this morning, you fathers here this morning. Blessing upon your family 
depends upon you. Do you want a blessed family? Then I urge you to put every thought of a family out of your minds and direct your hearts to verse 1, to the fear of God. Because family blessings do not begin with faithfulness to your family. It begins with your faithfulness to God. It begins with your fear of God. The world is devastated by divorce. The world is being devastated by men who willingly leave their families, their wives, and their children because they have no fear of God. And when you have no accountability, when you have no sovereign, omnipotent God and judge whom you know you're going to stand before and give an account for your life and give an account for the way you've raised your family, then it is no big deal for you to take up and go find yourself another woman and start shacking up. When there's no fear of God, there's no accountability. But when you have the fear of God before you, the fear of God in your eyes, there's fear and trembling. Because you men know that when you depart from this earth, you are going to stand before a holy God and He is going to ask you to give an account. He's going to ask the elders to give an account for the way which they shepherd the church and He's going to ask you men and husbands to give an account for the way you shepherded your families. And if you have no fear of God, two things are going to happen. Either your family is going to become trash or your family is going to become an idol. Your family is going to become trash because you are incapable of giving to them the wisdom and love and instruction that a Christian man gives to his family. Or else you're going to make your family an idol. You'll live your life doing all these things for your family thinking you're giving them a better life. And I've, I've spoken with so many of you, and I know uh, so many of your backgrounds. And I know, even as Chun spoke of how his mom brought him here for a better life, and many of you, your parents came here to give you a better life. And your dads, they worked them, their fingers to the bones, and they worked so hard to provide you a better life so that you could get a good education. That you could get a good education so that you could get a good job. That you could get a good job, that you could get, have a good life, and you could have the American dreams. But they neglected the most important thing in life, the fear of God. They neglected instructing you and bringing you up in the ways of the Lord. And I've talked to many of you, and many of you don't even have a relationship with your fathers. You don't know what it's like to have your father sit down with you and and love you by instructing you in the Word of God. Do you want to love your family? Fear God. Family joy is built upon the foundation of a father's fear of God. Look on at verse 2. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Verse 2 simply reaffirms God's covenant with those who walk with Him. You shall eat the fruit of your hands, meaning you'll be rewarded for your labors. You'll be rewarded for your labors. You'll be happy and it will be well with you. When you men fear the Lord by walking in His ways, you are now on the pathway You are now on the pathway to receive the joys, the delights, the blessings of God. Which now enables us to move to promise number two. Promise number two. Your fear of God brings joy to your wife. 
Your fear of God brings joy to your wife. This blessing is one of the most incredible earthly blessings in all of this life. First of all, the fact that any of us would ever get a wife is a blessing in itself. Proverbs 5.18 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9.9 Enjoy the life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which she has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So the Scriptures tell us that we are to enjoy life with the woman we love, that a wife is a blessing from God. Not just any blessing, but the most precious earthly blessing. But the Bible also defines life with a woman who can be a curse. The last half of Proverbs 12, verse 4, says that a wife who brings her husband's shame is like rottenness to his bones. Proverbs 19, 13 says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. 27, 15 says a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. One man's paraphrase of Proverbs 27, 15 says, A nagging wife is like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet. You can't turn it off and you can't get away from it. Proverbs 21, 9 says, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And Solomon was so certain about this proverb that he wrote it again. He wrote it twice. A contentious woman is a woman who often exhibits perverse and worrisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. She's quarrelsome. She's nagging. She's not a joy to be around. She's no, there's no delight found in her. And this kind of wife is a thorn in the flesh. But a more encouraging note, the Bible speaks abundantly about the blessings a wife brings to a man. Listen to Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. The mule said in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife, who can find? And many scholars believe that Lemuel was perhaps Solomon. And here's Solomon who had 700 wives. And now he's saying, an excellent wife, who can find? I had 700 of them and I can't find one. You know why? I think Proverbs 19.14 tells us why. Because there Solomon said, House and wealth are the inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Solomon was filthy rich because he was born into a filthy rich family. He was handed down these riches. He was handed down all these material blessings. But a prudent wife is a blessing from the Lord. It's a blessing from God. It's a blessing to a man who fears God and walks in His ways and obeys Him. And Solomon didn't know what it was like to have a godly wife as a blessing in his life because he had no real fear of God in his life. But let me make this a major caption. If you think for one second that your wife is a curse, then you better evaluate your walk with God. You better understand that your marriage will change when your pursuit of God changes. 
Do not think for one second this morning that I or the Bible are advocating that you have married the wrong woman. The problem this morning, if your wife is an ag or if you're strong in your marriage, is not that you've married the wrong woman. The problem is that you are the wrong man. The problem is that you are not fearing God and you are not walking in His ways and you have not submitted yourself or are not submitting yourself or not humbling yourself to the Word of God. And your wife is not the blessing that she might be because of your own doing. Man, I know you've heard it over and over, but your marriage is a reflection of your leadership. Your marriage is a manifestation of your walk and pursuit of God. Your marriage reveals your devotion to the chief shepherd. And when you get right with Christ and when you're freeing God, then you are in a place to receive the true wisdom and the true blessing of a joyful, godly, prosperous marriage. I want to remind you this morning of the story of Nabal. If you remember 1 Samuel, there we read the story of David and his men. They have been in the hills. They've been running from uh, King Saul who's out to kill David. He's out to take David's life and so David has run into the hills and there with his men they're in hiding and there they come across some shepherds and their sheep. And for shepherds and sheep in the, in the wilderness was dangerous. It was a deadly task. Shepherds were often attacked, killed, their sheep were stolen. And then they come across these shepherds who are caring for their master's sheep. And these men and David decide that they're going to care for these men and their sheep who are belonging to this man Nabal. And this has set the story up even more. First Samuel 25 tells us that Nabal, his name means fool. Imagine having a name, fool. And so here are these men, they're taking care of these sheep. And at the end of this time, David says, you know, I've been faithful to these men and these sheep, and I think I'm going to send some men to Nabal, and I'm going to ask Nabal to provide some food for us, because we're pretty much out of everything, and we're desperate, and we need some help. And I've done a favor for this man, a great favor, I'm going to send my men. So he sends his men to Nabal. And they come to Nabal and say, look, we're David's men, we've been helping you, can you provide some food for us? This man looks at them, he ridicules David and basically tells these men to get out, get lost. Who are you guys? Take a hike. And so these men go back, tell David what happened. And David, he gets infuriated. And he, in his passion, decides he's going to take 400 of his men, of his warriors, and he's going to go to Nabal's house and he says, I will not leave. He says, far be it from me if there is even one male left to the household of Nabal in the morning. I'm going to execute every single man in this household because of this wicked man's heart. And so David orders up his men, he rounds them up, and he starts heading down to Nabal's house. But at the same time, while all this is going on, Nabal, some of Nabal's servants had been standing there and they had watched the way Nabal treated David's men. And so these men go to Nabal's wife. Nabal's wife's name is Abigail. And the Bible tells us that Abigail was a beautiful and intelligent woman. And when she hears this, she knows exactly what David's going to do. She knows about King David. And so she gets Nabal's servants and she says, Quickly, 
get this food, get raisins, get figs, get cakes, get sheep, load them on the donkeys, and head out to David, and I'll come behind you. And so, she sends these men out, she comes, she meets David on his way with his men, she jumps off the donkey, she gets down at David's feet, and she starts confessing and saying, David, forgive me. She says, Forgive my, don't worry about Nabal. Please forgive me for doing this thing. She takes her husband's foolishness upon herself. She takes her husband's arrogance and pride upon herself and says, Forgive me for what my husband did. And David sees this woman and he commends her for her righteous acts. And he, ta- he accepts her gift and he says, Go back. Go back to your house in peace. And he turns around with his men and goes back. Later on, the scripture tells us that Abigail goes back that evening and she finds her husband in a, he's a drunken stupor in this party that he's thrown for himself. And so she decides that he's too drunk to tell him what's happened, so she waits till morning. And the scriptures tell us that in the morning she goes to Nabal, which means fool, and she tells him, look, this is what you did and this is what almost happened to you because of your foolishness. And the Bible tells us that Nabal's heart died within him and he turned to stone. Meaning that he probably had a stroke. And he stayed in this state for ten days and then ten days later it said that the Lord struck him down. And I want to say this very gently. But some in the world and maybe some in this church are Nabal and your wife is Abigail. And your wife is constantly having to make excuses and constantly having to seek forgiveness. You have this godly wife, this intelligent, beautiful wife, and yet you are like a Nabal. You're like a fool. And you're not leading your family. And you're not shepherding them. And you're not living like a godly man. And you need to repent. You know, when David heard about Nabal's death, he went to Abigail and he asked her to be his wife because he saw the incredible blessing that this wife would be to him, that this woman would be to him. And I urge you men to wake up and I ask you this morning, do you see any Nabal in your own life? Do you see any Nabal in your own heart? Because you need to wake up and you need to fear God. You need to honor your family. You need to be a blessing. And when you do this, verse 3 says that your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. The Bible uses this image of a vine numerous places in Scripture. And it uses this because a vine is something that needs tender care. The vine is something that needs affection. The vine is something that needs constant cultivation. And the psalmist, as he explains this fruit-bearing vine, that we understand that this isn't, this isn't ivy, this isn't uh, honeysuckle or kudzu or something, but this is most likely a grapevine. And grapevines bear fruit because they've been cared for and cultivated. Because vines are fragile. They're affected by the weather. They're affected by the soil. They're affected by the environment. Horticulturists tell us that a vine calls for harder and more regular labor than any other form of agriculture. Constant pruning of the vines is necessary if the clusters of grapes are to grow to full maturity. 
In other words, these aren't just the type of vines that just kind of grow in the wild. Vineyards aren't something that just pop up overnight. They don't just pop up like blackberry bushes. There's something where the, the gardener, the, the vine grower, has constant care and attention to his vine. The Bible says that our wives are not like the potato plant. Potato plants, potato plants is just that, that potato you just chuck it in the ground, this root, and you just you bury it in some dirt and you walk away and it does fine. You don't really have to do anything. It just kind of takes care of itself. But some of you guys, and I would confess even my own guilt, that we're guilty of treating our wives like they're potato plants instead of Delicate grapevines. Now, I know that some of you have wives who are tougher than you. Okay? I'm like that. You know, my mom, she ran marathons. My dad didn't. All right? Uh, this weekend, on Friday and Saturday, I was sick. I got the flu. You know what I did? I, I curled up like, in a fetal position and I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> You know, I get the flu and it's like, I'm going to die. It's like the black plague has struck the house. My wife, you know, I mean, she told me, she said, Marcus, don't say that. That's not true. I'm like, yeah, it is true. You know, they bear children. Their wives are tough. They're taking care of kids and they're sick. You know, and I'm, I'm moaning and crying out, take me to the hospital. You know, but spiritually, your wives are not tougher than you. And men, maybe your wives are more godly than you. Maybe your wives know the Scriptures better than you do. Maybe your wives spend more time praying than you do. But they will not nor cannot be the spiritual leaders of the house. It's impossible. The Bible never, ever, ever commands or demands for the man to submit to the leadership and authority of his wife. Because the Bible never, ever explains that the man is the garden. The man is always the gardener. The man is always the vine tender. And the wife is always the vineyard. She is always the garden. She is always the one that needs cultivation. She is always the one that needs care. She is always the one that needs attention and affection. She always needs you to be the head. She always needs you to be the master of the household. She always needs you to wash her in the water of the Word. And that will never change. That will never reverse. The Scriptures tell us here that this wife, as a blessing, will be a fruitful vine. And it speaks of this continual action of bearing fruit, this continual, perpetual blessing to you and your family. But some wives are withered and dying. They're bearing nothing but the fruit of sorrow or apathy or weakness or worldliness because of your unfaithful cultivation. A gardener who leaves his vine to care for itself will only come to find his vine withered and brown, crusty and crackled, its leaves fallen off. And the Scriptures tell us that you will reap what you've sown. You want a wife that is a blessing? Man, I urge you this morning to cultivate your wife, to wash her in the water of the Word. Show your wife 
how much you desire her holiness. Speak the word to her. Prune her with your loving kindness. Water her with your faithful prayers. Then you will be a blessed man. Some of you want a blessing without doing the work. You want a potato wife instead of a grapevine wife. Well, I urge you to get biblical. I urge you to see the way that God has made a woman. I urge you to shepherd her, to care for her, to tend her, to garden her the way the Scriptures has commanded us to. But it's interesting to note, if you look back in the text there, she will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And then it says immediately afterwards that your children, like olive plants around your table. And I think that the fruitfulness, maybe even specifically spoken of here, is refers to the blessings of your wife-bearing children. And that leads us to promise number three. Your fear of God brings joy to your children. Your fear of God brings joy to your children. Your children will be like all the trees around your table. Now you have to remember something. You have to back up and understand that for the Jews, physical blessings... And spiritual, physical blessings were tied to spiritual blessings. Alright? We're not going to read Leviticus 26. But in Leviticus 26, God makes clear that obedience to Him results not just in spiritual blessings, intimacy with God, fellowship with Him, but it resulted in a prosperous, material, materially good life. And Israel enjoyed that as long as she walked with God. And you know the rest of the story. But specifically, even in Leviticus 26, one of the consequences of obedience was a family, was children. Likewise, the consequences of disobedience to God was a, a barren wife. And that's why in these, the Old Testament, you see that these women, when they were not able to have children, they were desperate. Because for them... For in our country, in our culture, it's, it's the stigma isn't that you're cursed. But in this culture, if you couldn't have children, it meant you were shamed. It meant that God's hand was against you. It meant that you were a curse to your husband. And it brought this incredible shame. Remember Sarah, how much she longed to have children? Remember Hannah? Remember Hannah? And remember... Uh, her husband, Elkanah, and he had two wives, Hannah and Panina. And Panina had a children, she bore children, and she just kept just antagonizing Hannah over and over because she, she couldn't bear children. And she was this thorn in Hannah's side. And Hannah was miserable. And she was ashamed. For the psalmist and for the rest of Israel, children were a blessing and a sign of obedience. And so it says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Your children like olive plants around your table. Now, almost everything I've said about the wife, would you go back and, and place that here? That your children are, are tender and they're young and they need you to cultivate them. Fathers, your children desperately need you to be a godly man. The state of the family in America, you guys know it's atrocious. It's indicated that the number of minutes 
parents will spend in meaningful conversation with their children is 3.5 minutes a week. This is a secular study. Parents will spend average 3.5 minutes of meaningful conversation with their children a week. Do you know how many minutes they'll spend in front of the TV? 1,960. Versus 3.5 minutes of meaningful conversation. A youth will spend 900 hours in school and he will spend 1,500 hours in front of the TV. Children between the ages of 4 to 6 were asked if they would rather watch TV or spend time with daddy. 54% of the children said they would rather watch TV. God has a radically different view of children than the world does. The Scripture says that they are a gift. They're a blessing. And we desperately need to see that our children are a gift from the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Two commands. Discipline and instruction. Proverbs 13.24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23.13-14, Do not hold back discipline from a child. Now what is discipline? Listen to the rest of the verse. Do not hold back discipline from a child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. There are few things more shameful than children who do not fear their parents. There are few things more shameful than a child who just gets his own way. And Amy was reminding me of this incident this summer with the Orange County team. She was with some of the sisters and they were sharing the gospel with this woman. And while she's sharing the gospel, this young woman's son was just throwing this fit. And he literally began punching his mom and hitting her and kicking her. He was screaming and shouting and yelling at her. And then he ran off. And this woman, she's sitting there, she goes, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, and she went and got her son, and she picked him up, and he began clawing her face, and she brings him back over, and she's talking to these girls, and the mom says, I'm so sorry, I didn't give him a toy today, that's why he's acting this way. And the whole time this is going on, the dad's just standing there with his arms folded, and he's not doing anything. And a child who gets his own way, he brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Corporal punishment is the biblical means of training your children. Shame on you for not believing the scriptures over your own understandings of how to raise your children. And I pray for you young families now that you would not give in to this psychology and you would not give in to this mushy, pathetic, worldly wisdom of how to raise up your kids. But you raise up your kids in the ways of the Lord. If you've not read Bruce Ray's book, Withhold Not Correction, I commend you to it. 
In chapter 6 of his book, listen to this. He says, It is the responsibility of fathers in particular to see that children, that discipline is administered in the home. And God says that if you love your children, you must discipline them. There's no antithesis between love and discipline. Some people tell me that they love their child too much to apply the rod. They say that love and discipline are at opposite ends. But that simply is not so. On the authority of God's word, I can say that love expresses itself in discipline. Because God says, he who spares the rod hates his son. Despite all protests to the contrary, if we allow our children to go their own way without administering correction, it is a sign to the world and to our child and to God that we despise our child's soul and are content to see him continue in his downward spiral towards hell. End quote. When you teach your children and you discipline your children through spankings, you are telling them that you will not tolerate sin. And when you do that, you shepherd them and you tell them that it's not just because you do not tolerate sin, but it's because God will not tolerate sin. And the corporal punishment, the spanking that you are giving to them, is nothing compared to the punishment they will receive unless they cry out to Christ and are freed from their sin. And when you discipline your children biblically and you use the Word of God to shepherd them, the Bible says that you will be blessed. Your children will be fruitful. I just heard a few days ago of, of one dear brother, not of this church. His young son just came to the Lord. And every time I would talk to this man, and every time I would ask him how I might pray for him, he would always say, pray, pray for my children. Pray that my children would come to know Jesus Christ. And this man was so diligent to teach his children the Word, so diligent to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And yet these, his young children just lived in rebellion. Well, his son recently came to the Lord, and uh, one afternoon, he came to his parents, and he said, he, he said, I have to tell you, I have to get something off my chest. He's really burdened. And like, you know, what is it, son? And they had this, they've made it so that their children can be so open with them. And the son said that he had picked up one of his mom's magazines and he was looking at it. And he came across a picture and this picture he saw was stuck in his mind and he couldn't get it out. Now I know if, if you're me and I hear this and I'm thinking, well, he picked up some, you know, Cosmopolitan or Victoria's Secrets or some ungodly magazine and he sees this. You know what he was looking at? He was looking at Family Circle. He's looking at some magazine that's not even ungodly. And yet his conscience, as a brand new believer, had been so trained and so shepherded and so nourished by his father's instruction. And his conscience and his heart were so tender to the tentacles of sin. Do you want children like that? Do you want children who know and are on guard against the things of the world? Then instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Instruct them in the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, a single person, he has one infinite responsibility, and that's for his own life. But if you're married, if you have children, you have infinity squared upon your back. 
You have the weight of infinity squared, not only with your own life, but that of your children. And I urge you to think about how hard your own father worked if he came to this country and he sought so hard to work and provide for you. And I ask you to take that example and I ask you to make that into a biblical principle of how you should biblically train your children. That the motivation that your earthly fathers had to give you an earthly life, that that would become a conviction and a fire for you to bring your children to the Lord and offer them up to Him. And verse 4 tells us full circle that when you do this, you will be a blessed man. When you obey these principles, you will know these promises. I remember as a child, the trials my own father went through. I remember particularly hard times and there were worrying about financial things and worrying about where things were going to come from. And there was one particular time when my parents had enrolled us in a Christian school in third grade and they were unable to pay the bills. And I'm not sure why, I've never asked them, but for some reason, we're in class in the middle of this, and I was in third grade, in the middle of class, my parents had to come and they had to take us from school. They had to take us away. And I remember we were crying and I remember my mom was crying and I remember it was very hard for them. And I know that for some of you men, and even in the future, some of you have not experienced this, you are or will experience incredible pressures and incredible burdens. I know that being a man and being a husband and being the provider for the household lays heavy burdens upon you that no one else knows about. But when you are fearing and walking with God, And when you're trusting the omniscient, sovereign God of the universe, you need not fear anything else. You need not fear the impact the world is going to have on your children. You need not fear where money, where finances. You need not fear how your kid's going to go to college. When you're fearing God, you need fear nothing else. So you are blessed when you do this. I regret that I'd like to spend more time on verses 5 and 6, but I want to, I do want to say this. Verse 5 and 6, The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. These last two verses speak of the blessings upon a nation. Now get this. When a man walks with God, he brings blessing to his wife. And his wife walks with God and she brings children and bears children. And this circle comes full circle where this man becomes blessed. And when this man is blessed and he raises up a godly family, it doesn't just impact his own life. Your family is going to, in every way, impact the church of God. And the church of God is in every way going to impact this nation and the world. You're looking at, Lord willing, the next generation of pastors and of missionaries in this church. And if you don't start thinking that way now, 
then who's going to do it? Are you going to point to the churches down the street who don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God? Are you going to point to the churches down the street who are going to preach a watered-down gospel? If you don't take it upon yourselves this morning to raise up children who fear God and who love the doctrines of God's sovereignty and of grace and of His election, then who's going to send children and missionaries who preach the gospel? This text points you, fathers and mothers, families, to raise up the next generation who will fear the Lord. Let me just close with a few applications. I speak to mostly husbands. First, be a servant and be humble. Be a servant and be humble. The word family comes from a pre-Latin word, famulus, which meant servant. This then became the Latin word familia, which meant servants of a household. So the word family derives from the idea of servanthood. To be a family man means to be a servant. To be a family man means to humble yourself. And you're aware that no one has ever or will ever or can ever humble himself like Jesus Christ humbled himself. Because no one could ever be as high and exalted as Jesus Christ. And therefore, when Christ came to earth and became a man, therefore no one can ever go that great gas, that grab, and that distance to humble himself. But you as a father and as the head of the household, you have the ability to become the most humble member of the household. Because no one in the household has the authority you have. Therefore, no one in the household can come as low as you can and come down on his knees and become as humble and become as the greatest servant as you can in the household. And so I urge you this morning to become a servant. Show your children what it means to be humble. And I urge you to live your life out before them. Read the Word of God before them. Confess your sins before them. Confess your sins to them when you wrong them, when you spank them wrongly, when you speak harshly to them and you're ungracious to them. Confess your sin to them. Explain to them how desperately you need Christ. And explain to them how desperately they need Christ. Let them see you love your wife. Let them see you care for their mother. Let them see you love your mom more than you love them. Read the Word of God and pray with your children. One of my most favorite times in the Czech Republic with Peter and Sonia was bedtime. And every night while I was living with them for three months, I would go into the children's room with them and we would sit down with Joshua and Catherine and Matthew and Daniel and we would open the Word of God and we would read. And the children would interact with their dad over the Word of God. And it's so incredible just to see the insight and to hear the questions and to listen to little children learn how to pray. And if you miss out on that, if you don't do that, you are missing out on one of the most incredible Christian blessings that God has provided. Secondly, saturate your marriage with the Word of God. And I speak this to husbands and wives. Your marriage must be saturated. It must be consistent upon the staple foods of Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. When I asked Amy to marry me, and 
proceeding up to that, I had memorized Ephesians 5. And when I asked her to marry me, we went out to the woods, we went on a hike in the snow, and I recited Ephesians 5 to her, and I emphasized heavily verses 22 through 33. And I did that because I wanted her to know, and I wanted to prove to her that I took what I was asking her very seriously. I took the covenant I was inviting her to take with me very seriously. And I urge you to make Ephesians 5, and I urge you to make Ephesians, I mean, 1 Peter 3, the center scriptures of your marriage. Go over them with your wife. Read them together every month. Go out on a date. Go down to the ocean. Go down to the beach. And just read the Word of God and and remind your wife of the covenants you have made to God and to her. Thirdly, it's very practical, husbands. Go to the CBC website. Go to Pastor James's Pastor's Corner and download the questions for husbands and their wives. Give them to your wives. Leave her alone. Send her to Starbucks. Let her leave her there. You take care of the kids and let her evaluate your marriage. Let her evaluate your life. And then have her give those and then go lock yourself in the closet and pray. And fourthly, if you have children, this is very practical, just take your kids, take each one of them out once a week, once a month, just take them out on their own. Take them out to get a donut. Just take them out and spend time with them. I know one brother at seminary just telling me a couple weeks ago that every week he takes his young daughter out. They go to the, the donut shop, get a donut. They go to ice cream, get an ice cream. And then they go to the park and they just spend time reading the Bible and they're studying one of the epistles together. And that is going to have an unbelievable impact on that little girl goes up to a woman. And I commend you to that, men, this morning. Psalm 128 is a wisdom psalm that revolves around the choices of the Father. So what will it be, men? Will you be a blessing or will you be a curse to your families? I stand before you like Joshua stood before Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I speak from my own heart and I speak to you on behalf of the elders that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will you serve the Lord with us? Let's pray. Father, we confess our shortcomings. I confess my shortcomings. I confess that I have preached and exhorted, commanded and commended above myself that I am in many ways a delinquent husband and father and I need your grace to repent and be faithful to Amy and to be faithful to Lydia. And I also pray this morning that, Lord, the men in this room would not leave unaffected by your word, but that you would 
implant this word in their souls and cause them to have a massive vision for the family, a biblical vision, that they might know the incredible joys and blessings that their wife and children will be to them and to the church and to the world. Lord, thank you for Psalm 128. We praise you and thank you and trust that you will impart the Cornerstone Bible Church godly families who will raise up men and women who fear you and long to do your work. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.